0: The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These podcasts are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.
1: I think a lot of people out there think that if we do a test, we can look for everything. And if it comes back to be uh, a negative or a normal test, everything, you know, the child will be healthy, etc. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there, which obviously is the topic of our conversation today.
0: The role of genetic counseling in reproductive medicine is complicated, and there are misunderstandings about how genetic counseling works. Today, I speak with Jill Fisher, who is the director of the genetic counseling program at Kane University, about misconceptions about genetic counseling. I am Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today.
1: Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine.
0: When I sat down with Fisher, I asked her,
1: what is the role of a genetic counselor? We are there as, you know, acting as the in-house genetics expert. We're a decision maker sitting at the table uh, deciding policy. We foster patient-centered care. And I think one of the things, especially with more and more genetic testing being conducted, is because of our interaction with patients and consenting and working with consent forms, and also our thorough counseling, we really help to mitigate clinic risk for liability. We may be hired like with a specific thought in mind of, oh, we're going to work with the PGD team. But once we really get there, I think the reproductive endocrinology team realizes what an asset we can be. And so kind of a broad brushstroke look or an overview is that we can really help with program initiation and oversight just generally but have different areas male or female infertility carrier screening donor gamete programs myself it was pgt pre-implantation genetic testing Um, with the advent of non-invasive prenatal screening i know genetic counselors can kind of help as the patients are. Um, kind of transitioning out of the IVF group. It's about the time when they would be looking at the the non-invasive prenatal screening. And lastly, I think having that another person on the team, not just the psychologist, but the genetic counselor really to offer that psychosocial support for patients.
0: So then what are the major misconceptions about genetic counseling that you would like a reproductive practitioner to know?
1: Um, I think one of the main things, and I've seen this over the years, is that and I'm going to get into science things here, but both members of a couple need to have the same mutation in a recessive gene for the child to be at risk. And, you know, they have couples cycling who have different mutations for the same gene, and they thought that that was safe, uh, quote unquote safe. And, and my answer is basically that's not true. And, and for these autosomal recessive conditions, if each member of a couple has a mutation, in the disease-causing gene, there is risk. And that risk specifically is 25%. And that means it's 25% chance that both members of the couple pass that mutation, and therefore the child receives both mutations, has those two mutations. So how do geneticists come up with these numbers? I had a lot of people that didn't know how we came up with these numbers, and it's not that we created these, this is actually mathematical way back from the beginning of genetics but a very simple equation for this is that we look at a multiplication of what is the chance the first member is a carrier, multiply that by the chance they would pass the mutation, multiply that by the chance the second member of the couple is a carrier, and multiply that by the chance they would pass the mutation. But autosomal recessive diseases have various numbers of mutation, just depends on the disease. So for example, sickle cell anemia, there's only one mutation. You either have it or you don't. Another example would be cystic fibrosis. There are over 2,000 mutations. So that's a lot of mutations. Can the mutations vary in type? When it's a disease that has many different mutations, the mutations can actually vary in type. They can be overt and just completely stop the gene from working or they can modify the protein that the gene makes, so it just functions less. Maybe it functions at 80% or or worse at 20%. So as a whole, mutations can be severe, they can be moderate or mild. So even with these recessive disorders, even though the risk is 25% for the couple to have a child that's affected, the severity of the disease can vary depending on the mutations present. Um, So I think that may also complicate the understanding or why there might be a misconception as to what really is the risk. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. What's another important misconception? What I would say another misconception, and we get this all the time as genetic counselors, is that only people of a certain ethnicity, have certain diseases. Instead of saying the diseases are only seen in one population, what we can see is that they're more common in certain populations, but this doesn't mean that they're non-existent in other populations. And this all kind of, in a sense, it just goes back to, to evolution or, or just the scientific thought process behind these. And some of the things that we really know that, that cause a disease to be more common in certain populations are things like founder effect would be a large number of people in a population come from a smaller number of individuals. So if that mutation was common in this smaller group of individuals, it was perpetuated within that what becomes that larger group of people. And you see this a lot with people that want to um, say marry within a their certain ethnic group or larger, maybe their religion. One of my first positions We actually were uh, working on pre-implantation genetic testing for a condition called Tay-Sachs disease. Tay-Sachs disease is prominent in the Ashkenazi Jewish population, and it was thought that it was really solely in that population. And so what was very interesting is that we had some women coming to us that were from a Christian community in Louisiana, and their story was really quite unique. They actually had children that um, succumbed to the condition of Tay-Sachs disease. Finally, the diagnosis was made. It really shocked everybody because that's not what was expected because they weren't of Ashkenazi Jewish background. And so these women actually created or formed a little group and they went around and did carrier testing in their community. And what was revealed from that is that the carrier rate of those people in that population rivaled those of Ashkenazi Jewish background. And so what's interesting is if you look at history um, of the Creole population in Louisiana, this condition, which had been called lazy baby syndrome because they didn't know it was Tay-Sachs disease, what we found in working with and looking at historians is that there actually were people from France that back in the 1600s settled in Nova Scotia, and then they were forced out by the British. And so um, they kind of settled in different areas in North America but what ended up happening is you have this um, group of french canadians in quebec that have a high rate of this carrier incidence and then you have a population of this group that ended up in louisiana the people basically had children this mutation was perpetuated so here's an instance of a disease that was thought to only be in the Ashkenazi Jewish population to be actually because of a founder effect in people in French uh, Canada, as well as in the in Louisiana.
0: So then does a clear test guarantee a healthy
1: child? I think a lot of people, medical people, as well as lay people, think that genetic tests look for everything so that if I have a test in pregnancy, say a CVS or an amniocentesis, my child will be healthy if the results of that prenatal test are negative? The answer is no. Um, So whenever we do genetic testing to the accuracy of that test, I always tell whoever it is, patients, physicians, et cetera, that the test, if we get a normal result, it greatly reduces but does not eliminate risk. What about the heterozygote advantage? The heterozygote advantage, the scientific term, um, all that means is that there's selected advantage to being a carrier. And a carrier, that person is healthy. They don't have symptoms of the disorder because as we said, it takes two mutations to actually cause the disease. But being a carrier can actually be an advantage in certain situations. And I think a couple examples that probably most people have heard of one is sickle cell anemia. If we're a carrier for that, that it's protective against malaria. And another one is cystic fibrosis. And that was if we were carriers of cystic fibrosis, that was protective against cholera. Um, and therefore, since they survived, those mutations perpetuated in that population as they went on to have children. But um, you know, we talk about this in saying that these conditions are, are more common in certain populations, but I said earlier, that doesn't mean it's not in other populations. So Is it easy to add
0: a genetic counselor to an existing staff?
1: I have a lot of physicians coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, I really think this is valuable. I'd like to have a genetic counselor. I just think it's really difficult. How do I even add one to my team? And can I even do it? You know, I don't know if I can really support it it's really not difficult to add a genetic counselor there are oodles of genetic counselors out there now Um, we have so many of them that are interested in this arena myself and other program directors of training programs are making certain that the genetic counselors that are coming up through the ranks are familiar with assisted reproductive technology and what what we can do as genetic counselors on these teams Those groups that have genetic counselors, they have them, some are full-time, some are part-time. I have a few colleagues that actually are in private practice and they contract with groups. So those are all easy ways to work around it. What's one major change
0: in genetic counseling that you foresee in the near future?
1: I think a major change that I foresee in genetic counseling in the future is really the service delivery model. What has been traditional for genetic counseling, like other areas of medicine, is face-to-face. I can tell you that years ago, I did everything over the phone because our clients, the IVF groups, were all over the country and abroad. And I think what we've seen is slowly but surely, this change in service delivery model has started. And there are whole genetic counseling companies that everything is done via video conference or phone. And so I think a big change for us, especially with what's happening now with the pandemic, bringing this to light, is that a service delivery model where things can be done via video and or phone, either as an initial way to communicate or follow up um, if they are a patient that's coming to your site If not, if you're a laboratory and they don't ever come to your site, but the sample does, I think it's a great way to think about uh, really streamlining things. Um, And as we move forward with this, there are many ways we can take advantage. You know, back in the day when I was just using phone, I would actually send pictures and diagrams to people. But now you can do it live and you can have something interactive and really show them, you know, how chromosomes segregate or how a mutation moves within a family. So I think that that is something that is has started, but I think it can really move forward as we think of really having thorough care for the patients, thorough consults so that they understand the testing, but also keeping it in line with something where we can see the number of patients that we need to, knowing that they're all not going to be face-to-face. Jill, thank you so much for taking time out to speak with us today. Oh, you're very welcome, Jeff. This was very fun. I hope that everyone found it informative.
0: That was Jill Fisher, who's the director of the Genetic Counseling Program at Kane University. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today.
1: This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, other information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org.